0: The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. The nature of this passage is sexually graphic. Please use discernment and wisdom as you proceed. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. When Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chabiz when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give an offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite, And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to, Tamar to Timnah to shear a sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil. Wrapping herself up, And sat in the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said... If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at NAM at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, When the time of her labor had come, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, the brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself! Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: good morning again i'm gonna pray and we're gonna jump in father i thank you for your grace i thank you for your word i thank you that all of your word is profitable to teach um even this very strange passage um with words that we usually don't say in church So I ask that you would lead us and guide us, that you would help us hear your word. I ask that you would think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords, that you, um, the God of all the universe, you are present here with us in your word. And Father, you would anoint me to teach your word. Anoint it. Let it be like fire in my belly and let it be like um, a sweet-smelling scent in our nostrils this morning. I ask that you would do this for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've got a lot of, place, lot, of, lot of stuff to talk about. Last week, we began um, to study the last section in the book of Genesis, okay? We've been in the book of Genesis for almost a year now. We've been in this 41 weeks. Um, we're in the 10th section that covers the legacy of Jacob, and in that, the life of Jacob's sons. Many people think that this last section is just the story of Joseph because he gets the majority of the attention, But the last 13 chapters of Genesis actually gives us a picture of the entire legacy of Jacob through all of his sons. Um, But it really zeroes in and hones in on two of them with Joseph getting the majority of the attention. But today we take a week out of the story of Joseph. We started the story of Joseph last week. But chapter 38 comes out of the story of Joseph and we hone in on the story of Judah. And what's interesting is Judah, if, if you've ever... Genesis is the book of beginnings. Revelation is the book of endings, okay? And if you go to the end of the Bible, you're going to find that Jesus is called... That Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, okay? He's out of the lineage and the line of Judah, which is interesting. So Jesus comes from Judah. What's interesting about that is you think if you're going to have a king come up, you know, king of all kings and lord of all lords jesus then you're going to bring him from a pretty important person but what we're going to find with judah is judah is actually a pretty jacked up individual okay judah was joseph's older brother the fourth son of jacob he's a middle child and you know normally middle child wouldn't get much press but in god's sovereign election judah gets chosen as the man through whom Israel's line of kings, so all of the kings of Israel, the line of kings would now come through Judah. And most notably, the king of all kings, the very son of God, Jesus Christ. And like we said last week, Genesis has been showing us that God likes to choose men of disreputable character in order to change them by his grace and show off his glory. God takes, up, God takes messed up men and he changes them for his own glory. So let's dig in this morning. We're going to see what God has for us. Um, I'm just going to let you know Genesis 38 is the most sexual chapter um, in the entire book of Genesis. It is pretty provocative, its content is rather explicit. Um, I seriously doubt anyone ever saw this one on the flannel graph in Sunday school. What's that on the floor, Dad? Uh, but it's in the Bible, right? It's in the Bible and it's profitable for us to study. So we're going to, I'm going to make no apologies for the graphic content of today's sermon. Um, If you are a parent, uh, be advised and just, uh, uh, it's not going to be obnoxious, but just just so you know, if you have kids in the service. Um, As we jump into this text, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. This section of narrative is going on at the same time as the Joseph account, okay? So we started Joseph last week. Now we're talking about Judah, but these are running parallel to each other, okay? This, um, this chapter is actually covering 22 years of history, okay? 20, this one chapter is covering covering a time span of 22 different years, where Joseph, that same 22 years, is broken up over like eight different chapters, okay? So right now, Joseph is sold into slavery. That's what happened last week. He's sold into slavery and Judah. And this is kind of like the side, the parallel of count of his brother, Judah. So I want to remind you just a little bit of the history and the backstory of what we talked about last week. Judah was the hard-hearted older brother to Joseph who recommended, hey, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's make some cash off the deal, right? Let's sell him into slavery. So Judah is the hard-hearted older brother who recommended selling him without remorse. He went on to lie to his father Jacob by showing them Joseph's bloody robe that caused Jacob to believe that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. Chapter 37 said that Jacob grieved greatly over Joseph, but the brothers just sat there kind of like hypocrites. They were cold-hearted dudes. And now we're in Genesis chapter 38. If you have your Bible or you have your iPhone with your fake Bible on it, you could open that up or turn to it or find the liturgy. And we're going to start reading in Genesis chapter 38, verse one. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Okay? Right now in verse 1, um, we see that this is right after the events of last week. We see it, it happened at that time. So right after they sold Joseph into slavery, Judah leaves God's covenant family. He heads out on his own. That means Judah, is, Judah separates himself from a Christian community. Right? There's not like a bunch of different churches back in the day. This is God's one covenant family. And as Judah leaves, he's showing, I don't want to have anything to do with God's covenant family. I, I want to be out on my own. I want to party. I want to be like the you know proverbial teenager or college age kid who I'm going to figure things out on my own. And then I'll get married someday. When I have kids, then I'll come back to Jesus. But right now, I want to go party. I want to go live the life and do what I want to do. So we see Judah separating from God's people. Big mistake. Right, Last week we saw Joseph kind of step out onto the pages of Scripture as a spoiled brat, tattletale, who desperately needed to be tempered by God. This week, Judah doesn't look much better. Judah is a slave trader who has turned his back on God. He's callous towards his father. He's callous towards the covenant that was given to Abraham and his family. And he's cynical about God's people. I'll just do it on my own. I don't need church. I don't need God's people. That's a lie. Many people in our culture believe it today. I can be a Christian without God's people. No, you can't. You cannot be a Christian without being a member of a local body of of Christians. You can't do it. It's like being a, (laughs) Paul uses the example, right? It's like being a finger apart from a body. It's useless. It's pointless. We can't do it. Anyone that says they have God as their father must have the church as their mother. That's how it goes. So in verse 2, now look, look at verse 2 right away. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And the Hebrew here is, is, is funny because it's just really abrupt. He took her. He went into her. She conceived and bore a son. Boom, 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 boom. So in verse 2, we see that the first thing Judah does, right, what does he do when he gets out of, you know, he gets out of the shelter of dad, he gets out of the, the, the constri- you know, the constriction of religion, he's, he's away from the Christian community, what does he do? He finds a sexy Canaanite woman, he disregards God's covenant, he marries her. Abraham had warned his sons not to marry out, uh, women outside of the covenant family because that they would serve other gods and they would turn their hearts to worship other gods. But Judah disregards that and he marries an unbeliever. Sacred City, that's a big mistake. <clears throat> Earlier in Genesis, God has shown us that his, way, his ways are not really optional. If you break his rules, they come back and break you. If you choose to use sex and marriage in a way that he does not approve of, it will come back to bite you. This is not God being mean or vindictive. This is just the way he built all of creation. It's the way the world works. It's the grain of the universe. It's how God built us as humans and how all of creation is meant to function. If you break God's laws, they will break you. God tells us as Christians to only date and marry other Christians. He doesn't do that because he's a mean, you know, restrictive father. He does it because he's a loving and gracious, gracious father who wants to protect us from harm. He wants to protect us from a lifetime of misery. We are the family of God and we're only to marry within the covenant family of faith. But, uh, you know, we're, we're sinners. We're people that say, ah, oh, God, that's just... Old rules, that's just, you know, that's how you used to work in the Old Testament. You know, I'm free to do whatever I want because you're this hippie God of love now and you don't really have standards anymore. I can marry who I want to marry and sleep with who I want to sleep with and do what I want to do. It's it's my body. And God literally says, go ahead. It will go bad for you. And it does. If you choose to break God's laws for marriage, they're going to come back. And break you. You will be married to a person with a totally different worldview from you. Because they serve a totally different God. Now they maybe say they're a Christian. But you know if they are or they're not. You know by the way they live. Jesus says you judge a person by the fruit. And that's going to create all kinds of problems in your marriage and in your family. Now right now if you're dating. You don't believe that. Because love, 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 love covers everything. Ask, talk to somebody who's married. Ask them if love covers everything right? <laughs> Love covered a little bit for a little while, right? But listen, this, this is what happens. So two different worldviews. We ultimately serve two different gods and many, many wives think, well, he'll settle down. You know, just, he, he grew up in church. So I know he's got a good foundation. So he'll settle down when we have kids or he'll settle down when he, when he gets out of school or he gets out of the fraternity or he'll settle down and maybe he will, maybe he won't. You don't know if he will. And here's what happens. I, I've, I've, I've counseled so many people. I'm sitting there and he, he played the game or she played the game. Or she said she was a Christian or I didn't really think it mattered. So we were sleeping together and, and then we shacked up and we're living together. And now we want to get married. And then a year, two, five, seven into the marriage all hell is breaking loose in the family because he doesn't want to go to church anymore. She wants him to raise the family and lead the family spiritually and and raise up sons and raise up daughters in the faith. He doesn't want to do that. He never wanted to do that. So now there's, how are we going to parent the kids? How are we going to discipline the kids? How are we going to train them up in the way that they should go? Mom's trying to do it. Dad doesn't really give a rip, right? Now listen, why is this happening? Because you broke... God's covenant, you married someone you knew you were supposed to marry. The Bible said, so now it's going to come back and it's going to create turmoil. You see this in finances. One person's a believer. One person is not a believer. One person wants to honor God with their giving and say, hundred, everything that God gave me is his. So I'm going to honor him and tithe and give 10% of everything I make. I'm going to give 10% back to God in a covenant and honor God for for supplying all of my needs. And the other one, the other, the unbelievers like, you're not giving my money to church. That's, I could buy a boat with that. That's a Harley payment. Forget you're not doing that right now. And what does that create? That creates turmoil. That creates friction in the house that creates animosity. And then the kids see it. Right. And it rubs off on the family. And it's a law that we broke God's law. And now it comes back to break us. Right. You see this with spiritual growth. So many women want their husbands to lead them spiritually. And a husband is more interested in the PGA Tour. He's more interested in NASCAR. He's more interested in the NBA Finals. He's more interested in all these things than leading his family spiritually. And what happens? This is what happens. You have an earthly marriage that's going to end on earth. But think about this. Two Christians... When they're married, when the Bible calls them equally yoked, their marriage goes on into eternity. Their relationship goes on into eternity. It's glorious. It gets better and better and better and better and better. And then they die, and it gets better and better and better and better. It's amazing. It's a gift. Right, so this is this is why God says that He created in the beginning creates this covenant of marriage, and He wants sex to only be used not like as the second date or the third date, or to test if she's you know she's worthy of marriage or he's worthy of marriage. Right, sex is meant to be given inside the covenant of marriage, where you're completely vulnerable with each other. You're vulnerable spiritually. You're you're co- compatible spiritually. You're compatible physically. You're compatible financially. That you're completely committed and covenanted together. In marriage, that's what sex was created for. The union of one man and one woman to become one unique couple in Christ, right? And if we break that, it comes back to break us. And we see that in Judah's story here. He marries an ungodly woman and his sons are both godless and rebellious. That doesn't mean that it's all his wife's fault. It's not. It just shows us that he's not living his life for the glory of God. And at this point in Judah's life, he's either not a believer or he's a backslidden believer. So he's someone who embraced Christ maybe as a young young person, but now he's going to go check out the world and see what partying's all about and see what life on the road is all about. Either way, he married someone he shouldn't have married. And now he's not leading his family to love God and obey God's ways. And when you break God's laws, they break you. We're going to see that in the lives of Judah's sons. And some of you guys are going to get this picture of a totally different God that you never knew really existed. You just heard of him, right, in some far-off fairy tales. This is going to be kind of scary for some of us. It should be scary for all of us, okay? Both sons get whacked by God, right? Tony Soprano whacked, right? Just straight up. God says, oh, they're wicked. Both sons And Ur was the first one. And Ur, it's funny, bad name, because Ur backwards is evil in Hebrew. So this kid was wicked. God says he was wicked. And God kills him for being wicked. And then it says, uh, 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 right in verse 7, Ur, Judas firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this right here. This is, you might be shocked by this. God kills people every single day. Okay, hundreds of thousands of people get wiped off the planet every single day. I just watched a, a documentary on the tsunami. 200,000 people got wiped out in one day. God is still sovereign over all things, including death. And God's, some people think, oh, that was like the mean God of the Old Testament. You know, that was God like in his adolescent years. God has grown up now in the New Testament, right? He's got a little more mature and now he can handle his anger, right? So he didn't kill people. Sorry, but God kills people in the New Testament. This couple called Ananias and Sapphira, they come and and they bring they sell this field and they they bring the money to the apostles and the apostle goes, oh, great. Is that all the money? And they're like, yeah, that's all the money. But really they'd been pocketing some. So they they were lying to the Holy Spirit. They were lying to God. And what does God do? Kills them. He doesn't just kill them together either. That's the wicked part. He kills the dude first and the wife comes in like, where's my husband? And they ask her the same question. She lies too. Boom, he dies. Like God can be totally just and righteous and kill us right now. Why? Because we're sinners, because we're rebels, because we are wicked in our heart and in our, in our core. So I know that might be sobering, but I think we need to hear that. We need to understand that God is still free to take people whenever he wants. And I know there's all kind of weird stuff that goes on. Like this wasn't God's will for this person to die. And this, uh, God is sovereign and God is in control and God does all that he pleases. The psalmist says he's in heaven. He does all that he pleases. So we don't understand all of his ways. Like it is a mystery a lot of times, but God is sovereign over life and death. Now, this is what happens. So, older brother, he, he's wicked. He marries this woman named Tamar. God looks down and says, I am so tired of this wicked man. He gone. All right? He's dead. Now, the cultural practice of the day was if the oldest son um, left a widow childless, okay, then what, what would have to happen is the next son, if he wasn't married, would have to come in and marry the wife, give uh, have her conceive a child. And then here's what the, the, the trick. But then now that child would be the firstborn, would take the place of her, And he would be the firstborn. That means he gets all the stuff. He gets the inheritance. Um, so Onan is like, I'm, not, I'm, supposed to, I'm supposed to sleep with my brothers. I'm supposed to sleep with my sister-in-law. But if she gets pregnant, the child will get all my stuff. The child will get all of my inheritance because now I am the next in line to get the inheritance, right? So he's like, I, I don't want to do that. I, he's going to do something very wicked and very selfish, okay? So, so, and I just want you to remember, remember for Tamar that children were like a retirement package, okay you didn't have retirement back then, so your children were your inheritance were your heritage, so when you got old, your children could take care of you, your children could provide for you when you were too old so this is this was the cultural practice to provide for widows when they got older, so Onan was required to have sex with Tamar so that she could have a legacy and an heir all right and oh, now onan is going to practice, technically, this is called coitus interruptus, right? He's, he wants sex without responsibility. Hmm, That sounds really familiar to our day and age. Um, he wants to hook up and he maybe wants to shack up, but he doesn't want to marry. He doesn't want to have a covenant. So he just wants to play around, but he doesn't want to commit and be a man, right? This is um, very common in our day and age. So what does Onan do? Onan's like, oh, I'll sleep with her. But Onan pulls out and Onan practiced coitus interruptus and Onan, the scripture says, spills his semen on the ground and he continues to do this over and over and over. So Onan, he refuses to seal the deal with Tamar and he pulls out early so she can't get pregnant. And verse 10 gives us God's perspective on this whole deal. He calls it wicked once again and Judah's second son now gets whacked by God. God kills the second son, right? Judah broke God's law by marrying and creating a family with an unbeliever. Now, Judah's first two kids get whacked as wicked men. We break God's laws, they break us. That's how the universe works. Listen, and I, you might be mad at me. You don't, might not like those things. And, I, and I, frankly, like, I don't say these things to offend you, but I, I just say them because it, it just is how it works. Like, you don't have to like it. It's truth. It's reality. It doesn't really even matter if you disagree. This is the way God built the universe. You can really dislike gravity. You can really hate it and write papers about it and blog about it and be frustrated about it. and Stick your finger up at God about it. That's your choice. But if you break that rule, if you get climb up on to top of a tree and say, I hate gravity. Who's God to tell me I can't fly? Jump out of the tree. We'll find out who God is to tell you you can't fly. Right and if you break god 's laws, they break you. Now we get that with gravity, right but it 's the same way with our human sexuality it 's the same way with our finances it 's the same way with any area of our life god doesn 't set rules because he 's mean he sets rules because that 's how he built the universe to function right that 's how he built us to function <clears throat> so Judah and Tamar now, oh and two tamar 's had two husbands. Both of them get whacked by God. Uh, Judah's had two sons. Both of them get killed by God. But Judah now has one son remaining. So the, 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 the premise still remains. Judah's looking. He's like, okay, now Shelah is my last son. And I guess Shelah is supposed to be given to Tamar. But he refuses to give him. To Tamar. Probably thinking that Tamar is the reason his sons are dead. There's something with this Canaanite woman. There's something with this woman Tamar. I'm not going to give her. I'm not going to give him my last born son. He never thinks to blame himself. Or blame his own sin. For not leading his family to love God. Not leading his family to repent of their sin. To own their sin. To turn and confess. And embrace God as their savior. And as their righteousness. So Judah further sins against Tamar here. By refusing to give her to Shela, his lastborn son. And instead, he sends her away, tells her, go back to her own people, go back to your father's house, and he ignores her. But this is where we get to see another prominent theme from Genesis begin to emerge. Tamar, the godless outsider, sets out to make things right. I love this story. See, God is absolutely free to do whatever he wants with whoever he wants. And he often graciously adopts people from outside of the covenant family and he brings them into his people. He's free to do that. He's God. It's like um, a father in on our country uh, adopting a child from another nation. Right? He's not doing that because that child is so amazing. Right? He's not doing that because he thinks he, gets a, he could get a, you know, an NFL linebacker out of the deal. Right? He's doing that out of his, his just absolute free, lavish grace. You know what? We have a loving family. God's provided for us financially. Let's go adopt from overseas. This is something that, that we do as individuals, as Christians, because it's what God has done for us. He goes outside of the family and he loves to pull people in. It's what God likes to do. But what we're about to see is that God adopts and accepts a sinful outsider into his covenant family without condoning or approving of the sin that she's committing in the process. And I'm going to tell you, things are about to get crazy. All right. Things are about to get really wild in this story. So let's go to verse 12 and we're going to read verse by verse. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter died. So Judah's. Godless woman, godless wife dies. Everybody around Judah's dying. When Judah was com- comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friends, he and his friend Hira, the Adul- Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear a sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So do you see what's going on here? Okay, Judah is a wealthy old man and his godless wife has died and he's going to town. Okay, this is like the wealthy businessman going to Vegas for the weekend. And what Tamar does is she takes off her clothes of being a widow and she puts on the clothes of a prostitute. Right? And she's going to go to Vegas, and she's going to meet with Judah. Now, why is she doing this? Because Judah has sinned against her. Judah has not given her his son like he should have and like he promised to. Shelah should be her husband. She should have a child. She should be with child because if not, she's our widow, and she's not going to have anyone provide for, and she's destitute her future. She's going to be poor and impoverished for the rest of her life. Right? Judah owes this to her. It's the right thing to do. But Judah is a godless man himself right now. And he refuses to. Keep reading. <clears throat> Verse 15. When Judah saw her, so he sees the prostitute, her va- face is veiled. He thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Don't. She said, what will you give me? I love this. This is this, look what she's doing. What will you give me that you may come into me? She's talking money. He says, uh, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She's reeling him in your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widow again. Okay, so what I want you to see here is Judah wasn't planning on fornicating. What is fornicating? It's a big word we don't use anymore. Fornicating is having sex outside of marriage. Judah wasn't planning on having sex outside of marriage, so he didn't bring enough cash. (laughs) He went to Vegas without his debit card, right? So he promises, but he sees this hot woman. He thinks, I'm, I'm grieving, I don't have a wife anymore, she's hot, I'm at Vegas, hey, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? I'm going to go in and have sex with this woman, okay? But she's a smart prostitute, she, get, she wants to get paid up front, right? And what she says is, or she's playing the prostitute, what she says is, uh, what are you going to give me? He says, hey, I got a goat back home. <laughs> uh, luckily, she doesn't go, ooh, a goat, right? She's like, well, give me something else too, right? So... She asked for his signet, his cord and his signet and his staff. All right. A signet is a thing that went around his neck and it's a little cylindrical, uh, like stamp. Okay. It's made out of bone or stone and you would pour wax out on a, a document and then you would take your, your, um, your signet off and you would roll it. And that would be your sign and your seal. Okay. Um, for today's, uh, Day and age, this would be similar to your driver's license and your social security card. Okay? It's confirmation of who you are as a man, as a person. It declared authenticity. So for us, this is kind of like the politician who has left his wallet at the brothel. Right? He leaves his signet, he leaves his court, he leaves his staff. He's basically leaving his driver's license, his, his wallet, his social security. He's leaving that stuff with the prostitute. Okay, So Judah gives her his promise and, he's, and he gives her the seal. And he has sex with his daughter-in-law without knowing it's his daughter-in-law. Crazy redneck, right? This is, again, we've used the term over and over. This is very Jerry Springer-esque. In the book of Genesis, right? Now let's keep reading. The plot thickens. Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Edulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. All right, so listen. What happens after you sin? What happens after you go to the strip club? What happens after you get caught in your sin? What happens after, you know, the day after you've looked at pornography and you feel this way? What happens? You feel shame. You feel guilt. You feel dirty. Why? Because you were built to be ashamed. You were built To feel guilty. You were, why? Because you know it's wrong. You know it's a sin. So what does he do? He sends his buddy. All right, listen. Don't tell anybody about this. All right. I had a few drinks. All right. The beer goggles were on. All right. I hooked up with this girl in Vegas. And I left my wallet. You left your wallet? I left my wallet with her, man. She wanted my wallet. I left my wallet with her. She was hot. right. Will you go get it for me, please? Will you go to Vegas? (laughs) Here's her number. Here's her card. This is where she hangs out. Will you go to Vegas and fix this for me? Right. This is like the Hangover or something, right? Like, and she goes, and his buddy, sure, I'll go do this. I'll I'll go do that for you. Now let's look at verse uh, twenty or verse twenty-one or verse twenty. But he did not find her. 21. And he asked the men of the place, Hey, Hey, where's that uh, cult prostitute? And that's kind of like a little bit at first. They were just calling her a prostitute. Now they call her a cult prostitute. Um, it was a pagan, pagan, um, religion of the day that they had cult prostitutes. You worshiped by having sex. Okay. We would laugh at that, but actually that's what we do. And you know, music videos our music. Oh, we worship the God of sex or we worship sex in our day and age, um, as idolatry, but let's keep reading. Uh, at the roadside and they said, no cult, no cult, cult prostitute has been here. I don't know what you're talking about. So the friend, he returns to Judah and he said, dude, I did not find her. And the men of the place said, there's no cult prostitute that's been there. And then Judah goes, oh man, I am so busted. Uh, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. <laughs> You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. So Judah's like, okay, you know what? This, this, this is not good. She's got my wallet. She's got my debit card. She's got my credit card. But hey, I can go to the bank. I can get new ones made up. Let's just, let's not make a big deal out of this. Don't, don't make it public. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want people to find out about my sin. I don't want people to find out that I slept with some woman that I thought was a cult prostitute. I, she's not even there anymore. I, I sinned. I don't want people to know. I don't want anybody to know. Keep it on the DL. Okay, good. She's gone. All right. Keep that on the down low. Let's not tell anyone about it. He's embarrassed, right? He's the politician that he's left his wallet on the nightstand with the prostitute. And now it's going to show up. He's afraid it's going to show up on tomorrow's news. He's afraid of being exposed. Now, have you ever felt like this? Have you felt like this? Have you ever sinned in the next day or the next hour, or the next minute? Oh, crap. Who's going to find out? I hope this person doesn't, I hope hope it's not on Facebook. I hope it is, I hope my friend doesn't, I hope my wife doesn't find out. I hope my husband doesn't find out. I hope the pastor doesn't find out. I hope my friends don't find out. My reputation will be tarnished. People will know I'm a bad person. Right? Oh, crap. I know what I did was wrong, but I hope nobody finds out about it. Now, what can I do to cover my tracks? Okay, I'll delete the history on the computer. What can I do? To cover my tracks, right? I've broken God's law. Now God's law is going to break me. I'm afraid. I'm in fear. What am I going to do? How am I going to fix this situation? And then we start to worry and we start to come up with all these ideas in our head of how to control people. And maybe I should kind of talk to this person. And and we try to manage the situation and we're trying to find our way out of our sin. I hope we can resonate with Judah here. See, there's some of us in this room who are very similar to Judah. I would, I would grant to say that the majority of us in this room and every man in this room is similar to Judah. See, Jesus comes along and we look at Judah and we're like, well, I'm not that bad. I didn't commit adultery with my uh, daughter-in-law, right? Or I haven't committed adultery. I'm not like that guy. I'm a good guy. And then Jesus comes along, Jesus, the one who, we're always like, hey, don't judge, right? Jesus said to judge not. But then Jesus comes along and he says stuff like this. If any of you have looked at a woman with lust in your heart, then you're guilty of committing adultery with her. What? That's a high standard. Yes, that's a high standard. That's a holy standard. That's a pure standard. That's a blameless standard. That's Jesus' standard, and that's God's standard. And every single one of us, if we can see things clearly, we look at Jesus' standard and we go, yeah, I I fail. Yeah, I I suck at that. I am a lust. I I lust and I am an adulterer in my heart. That's who I am. I can resonate with Judah here. That makes us all as guilty as Judah. But listen, honestly, can you own that? Can you own that? Can you really say, I, I I'm a wicked person? Because I know, like that. Ooh, like I like my righteousness. I like I like my reputation. I like peop- when I hear about you know like people say the good things about me. Or they, he's a man of character. Or you know he, when he says something, he'll do it. Like I like to hear that. If I hear something negative about myself, I, I, I get I get frustrated. I, I, you're an adulterer, Justin. Whoa. whoa. Okay, I mean, like, yes, theoretically, in the words of Jesus, in my heart, yeah, but you know I would never, right? Like, I, I, won't, I have all these ways of justifying my behavior. I have all these ways of saying, well, 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 come on, calm down, calm. I'm not really that bad. Where are you at? Do you, can you own? Can you own your sin? Or do you resist that? Do you think, no, I'm not that bad. I'm not really an adulterer. See, the funny thing is, is Judah... Felt the exact same way. Look at verse twenty-four. About three months later, Judah was told, "Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. <sighs> she's had sex with someone she wasn't supposed. She's not married. She's had sex with someone." And I can imagine Judah. Oh, my daughter-in-law. I'm supposed to give her to my son, and she's sleeping with someone else. sinner right and more moreover she's pregnant by the immorality and Judah said look at this dude bring her out and let her be burned whoa hardcore right bring her out and burn her thanks dad Judah is self-righteous. Judah is a hypocrite. And listen, if you're, if you're not familiar with church and maybe you're not familiar with Christianity, many people, they look at Christians and they all look at Christians like Judah. Because there are a lot of them. There are a lot of people who say they're Christians, but they're Judah. They're self-righteous. They're full of their own wickedness and full of their own sin. And yet they point at other people and they say, bring them out and burn them. Bring them out and burn them. Right? And the, the church gets a reputation of being Judas, being people that just pointed at other people's sin and they just call people out and they don't see their own faults and they don't see their own failures and they don't see their own sin. Can you believe this? Can you believe? Let, let me just go do a quick run through of what Judah's done. Judah sold his brother Joseph into slavery. Now I beat the dog out of my brothers growing up. Right? I held them down and did this until they cried. Right, I let spit come out of my mouth until it got to the end of their nose, and then I would suck it back up in the, my mouth. Like, I tortured my brother. But guess what? I never sold him. <laughs> now, it might have crossed my mind, but I never sold him. But Judah sells his brothers into slavery. Right. Then he lies to their father and says, well, he's dead. Dad, look at, look at the, look at the robe. It's tore up and it's got blood on it. Dad, look like this is a big story that they've concocted. They lie to their father. The father is grieving and they're just laughing in the background. Right. Then he leaves the family. He leaves the church. He, he wants to do his own thing and go his own way. Then he marries an unbeliever. Right. Then he didn't love his kids. It says his kids were whacked by God and he didn't even, he doesn't even mourn. He doesn't even grieve. No, well, I got another one, right? He's a wicked man. He didn't leave them. He didn't grieve when they died. He was dishonored and, sent away, he dishonored and sent away his daughter-in-law Tamar. He slept with his daughter-in-law Tamar, who he thought was a hooker. But then he hears that his daughter-in-law is caught in sin. And he, what's he want to do? Burn her. you believe this? All of the sins that he's committed, all of the wickedness in his own heart, but he sees somebody else and he says, that's awful. Burner. This shows us something really important that none of us want to know and none of us want to see. And none of us are even capable of seeing without the Holy Spirit, and without God telling us. Judah is literally blind to his own sin. Now, this is where most people don't understand and they misunderstand what sin is. They misunderstand what does it mean to be a sinful person. Most people, you ask them, are you a good person? They go, yeah, I'm a good person. And you, you, the majority of people, you ask them, um, are you going to heaven? Yeah, I think so. Why? I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. Well, what does that mean to be pretty? Well, you know, my good, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. and I hope that's that way God. But that's not the way God judges. And that's not what a good person versus a bad person is. See, in the Gospels this is this will blow your mind in the Gospels, Jesus says this one time he 's teaching on prayer and he just drops he likes to drop these statements in like he 's talking about prayer, but he drops something else in that just meant to cook your noodle Jesus, he, he says this he 's teaching his disciples about prayer and he goes, "If you being evil give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give gifts to his and I imagine they 're thinking like, oh pray. what like if you being e- evil Jesus, you remember, you picked us. You picked us, remember? Like you came and got us and we're on your team now, right? Those people out there, they're the wicked ones. We're the insiders. Jesus, what do you mean? If you being evil, who's evil? Oh, I mean, I used to be. Jesus gives us a picture into how he looks at us, guys. In our heart. We are still sinful. We are still sinners, right? We still sin on the daily. We are evil people. Now it's, we don't want to, we don't want to believe that. Why? Because we always know people that are more evil than us, right? That's true. There are people more, there are people who are more evil, who practice their evil in different ways that are more evil That's true. It doesn't negate the fact that in our heart, we're marred, we're damaged And we're evil and we're sinners, right? So Jesus there in this offhanded way, he shows us what the Bible view, uh, he shows us the Bible's view of so-called good people. The disciples, we would say those are good people, right? It's a lot different from what we think. See, there are, in Romans it tells us, there are no good people in the world, ultimately good people, who are truly good. That sin has infected 10 out of 10 of us. That's 100%. If you didn't know. Right? All of us have hearts that have been infiltrated by a sinful nature. And right now, listen to me. Right now, your sinful nature is fighting against us and fighting against you and fighting against the Holy Spirit. Because your sinful nature does not want to see your sin. Do you hear that? You have a virus in your body that is actively fighting against you. You have a virus in your soul that is actively fighting against you seeing your own sin. It's in you right now. Sin, this is what's what crazy. Sin blinds us from our own blindness. See, I have no difficulty recognizing the sin of the people around me. But I can be quite unprepared when others point out my sin. What? Evil? Me? I'm a pastor. Right? I'm a man. I read my Bible. Right? I'm unprepared. Are you? Somebody points out your sin. I'm not like that. I didn't do that. I meant this. Justifying. Justifying. See, the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of himself than he does. Listen, this is why I have an external advisory board. This is why I go out monthly and I meet with these men and they're checking in on me and they're checking in on my marriage. This is why I have elders. This is why I'm in a fight club. This is why I'm in a missional community. This is why I have people in my life that check up on me and call me out and point out my sin to me and remind me of the gospel. Why? Because I need it too. Sin blinds us to our own blindness. Think about that. A blind person, they can compensate. They can have a walking stick. They can learn how to navigate. If you're blind to your own blindness, that's going to go bad for you. Right? Uh, uh, What's that noise? Nothing. Uh, uh. He gone, right? Blind to your blindness brings destruction. Now, can I ask you, who helps you See your own sin. Who helps you spot out your, uh, your blind spots? Who helps you to see what you will not see if left to your own? Who does that? And it's not like, well, I've got this friend out and blah, 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 or, you know, occasionally. It's got to be consistent, like a weekly rhythm in your life that you have people there who know you well enough that they can point out to you and remind you of the gospel. Like this is why we have our church full of missional communities and why we encourage people to be in fight clubs. And and this is why we do that. We need to be reminded and pointed out the areas of inconsistency in our heart so we're not like Judah. Listen, I don't want to raise up a church full of Judas. Church full of religious people who point out everybody else's sin, but they're completely aware of their own. Jesus was very clear. And he said that you better get the speck out of your eye before you go, or the log out of your eye before you go pulling the speck out of another person's eye. But is the speck in another person's eye a problem? Yeah. That's still a problem. But the freaking telephone pole in yours, you know, right? How do you even pull a speck out of somebody's eye with a telephone pole in your, right? Let me get that. Right. We've got to be able to see What we can't see and the only way to see what we can't see is have other people speak into our life This is funny I was working out in my garage the other day and You you guys know me. I'm I'm an aggressive guy. One thing I don't like Is I don't like whiners. Okay, if you're a whiner, I I love you in the lord. I'm sorry One day you'll grow up, but that's okay Uh, but I I don't like whining right and my son he comes in, he's whining about something, and I'm working out in the middle of a workout, right? Son, don't whine. He, he, I'm still working out. He comes back. I was like, son. And it was something wasn't going his way. And I go, this was, I literally said this. I literally said this. I said, Javin, does daddy whine when things don't get, go my way? This fast. He goes, no, you get angry. I go, yeah. ah." Oh. said, you are right, son. I do get angry and getting angry is no better than whining. And I repent for getting angry. And thank you for bringing repentance to my heart right now. Holy spirit, right? Like through the mouth of babes, man, like literally it was like this quick. It happened. Cut me to the heart, man. Cut me to the heart. Now look at verse 25. Look what's about to happen here. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, so he says, bring her out and let's burn her. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her (laughs) father-in-law. This is awesome. "Um, By the way, um, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. She'd been keeping them. She knew what she was doing. Please identify um, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Can you imagine this? They're going. They grab her. They're going to go burn her. She's like, "Oh, wait, 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 wait! Before you do, um, just take these to Judah and tell him whoever these belong to. This is who the daddy of. This is the baby daddy. Okay, go go to. And this guy's the guy's like, "Okay, we'll be right back. Give them to Judah immediately. Look what happens. Look what happens with Judah. Verse twenty six. Then Judah identified them. (laughs) Is this your ID?" Is that you in the driver's license? Is that your picture? All right? Judah identified them. And he said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, And he did not know her again. That means he did not have sex with her again. Did you see that? This is great. See, this is how God changes men and women. This is how God changes us. This is how God changes Judah. This is where Judah becomes a new man and God does it. He doesn't, guys, he doesn't do it by petting him. God doesn't do it. You know, you're so sweet and you're so gifted and you're so talented. And if you just came on God's team, you could do amazing things. This is how he gets him. God gets Judah by exposing his sin. God exposes his sin in such a way that according to 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says that a godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I believe the majority of churches in America today are afraid of people experiencing and feeling a godly grief. Paul says a godly grief produces a repentance that leads to a godly life without without excuses. And we're afraid to make anybody feel grieved. Listen, the spirit of God is meant to grieve us when we're living a way we're not, we're not built to live, right? We're meant to be grieved by it. And what happens is Tamar, in this beautiful little hooker scheme, she tricks Judah and exposes his sin in such a way that it brings godly grief and repentance to Judah. And that's how God changes people. God doesn't change people by just reading books and trying harder. He changes people through repentance repentance. And faith. Listen, we should be grieved over our sin. So many people are afraid of being honest. In our culture, we're so scared of developing real friendships and deep relationships in the church because we're afraid that somebody's going to find out that we're sinners, that we're, we're jacked up, that we don't have everything figured out, that we sin on the daily daily. We're not a good spouse or we're not leading our family. Well, we're so afraid of being exposed. If that's you, listen, if you're scared of exposure, you're going to stay out of a missional community. It's just too intense for you. It's just people know you're, they'll know you. It's it's too close. Even though that's biblical, even though if you go to Acts chapter two, that's what church is meant to look like. I'm going to tell you, this isn't church right here. This isn't church. We are the church. This is a part of what we do as the church. But missional community life is far closer to what the real church looks like. Living life, life on life, talking about, talking together, sharing our sins, sharing our struggles, sharing prayer, sharing meals, right? Praying, studying, living life on life. That's what the church looks like. That's what we need. That's what we're craving, but that's what our society and our six foot privacy fences and our garage doors that shut as soon as we get inside and our 70 inch televisions, we just want to be alone all the time. Right? We need people. So if you're scared of exposure, you're going to stay out of mission of community. You're probably going to be a hypocrite and a hypocrite literally means a person who wears a mask. You're going to come into church. You're going to put the mask on. You're going to meet people that are part of the gathered church. You're going to wear a mask. You're not going to be real. You're going to be honest. you going to be open. You're going to go to great lengths to justify your sin. Well, the reason I don't tithe is because, you know, I'm a broke college kid. The reason I don't do this is because of that. The reason I'm having sex is because of this. And, you know, my parents, my dad, and, and I didn't have that. I didn't have it. You're going to go to great lengths to justify your sin. If you're afraid of exposure, you're going to be really quick to point out other people's flaws. Why? Because as soon as you get the spotlight on you, If you can point out somebody else's, oh, the spotlight goes over there. You're going to get really quick at pointing out other people's failures and flaws. And many times you're going to surround yourself with fools and outsiders and unbelievers to make yourself feel better. See, I don't really feel wicked when I hang out with people who are more wicked than me. I actually feel pretty awesome. You know? But this is where the gospel this is where the gospel is such good news. See, Romans three tells us that God will give us a righteousness that is totally by faith. Theologians call this a passive righteousness. I want you to hear this. This is this is big because all we do. Why do they call it passive? Because we. Us, If you don't want to admit that you're evil, you're going to be constantly trying to earn a righteousness. See, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I did this. so I'm a good person. I I gave or, uh, you know, I helped that person out or I'm always there and I can always talk and I can always listen. And anytime you call me, I'll be there. I'm trying to earn this righteousness of being a good person all the time. But what Christianity offers and what the gospel offers is what's called a passive righteousness. Martin Luther said that we receive this righteousness, like it says by faith in Romans 3, but we receive it. Like the ground receives water. What does the ground do to receive water? (laughs) Nothing, right? Receives it. I'm dry. I need it, right? I absorb it. That's it. Does nothing. We receive a righteousness from God. Like the ground receives water. We don't earn it or create it on our own. We accept it. We embrace it by faith. But listen, here's the deal. If we don't accept the free righteousness of Christ that's given to us in the gospel, if we don't absorb it right like a ground absorbing rain, if we don't receive that and live in that and walk in that and relish that and meditate on that daily, if we don't do that, we are going to we are we will build our own righteousness on something else. See, if you're not believing the gospel, then you are building your own righteousness. And then listen, if you're building your own righteousness on something else, then now you have a vested interest in not seeing your sin. You hear what I said? So if I'm trying to make people believe that I'm a good person and I'm trying to believe myself that I'm a good person, I have a vested interest now in not seeing my sin. Because if I'm a good person and those are bad people and you point out my sin, oh, crap, now I'm kind of a bad person. See, so I have this vested interest in not seeing, I don't want everyone, oh, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to talk about my sin. I don't want anybody to talk about me being negative and me making mistakes and me being, oh, I just can't handle that. Oh, I'm just too sensitive. Oh, you're too aggressive. Oh, you're too, I'm going to make all these excuses because I have a vested interest in my own righteousness. My life is built on my own standard. And Listen to that. Guys, that is exhausting. That's a horrible way to live. It's called legalism. It's called moralism. It's a horrible way to live. If you must rely on what you can do this week to make yourself approved by God, then you cannot look at your own sin. You can't deal with it. But if you accept the passive righteousness, if you accept the righteousness of Christ that's given to us in the gospel, then you can be free to look at your own sin. You can be free to confess your sin. You can be free to own your sin. You can be like Judah, who when he's confessed with it, instead of explaining it away, instead of saying, well, she tricked me. What I meant was I didn't see it. Well, she was really hot. Well, instead of making excuses, he goes, she's more righteous than I. She's the prostitute. The prostitute is better than me what judah says see the gospel is affecting his heart he sees other people's sin not as greater than his own but he sees his own as greater than theirs he bails on his own reputation he bails on the i'm a good person and i'm better than that he sees his own sin it's a great moment right here in scripture tamar exposes judah's sin and judah repents now listen as i close what does repentance mean so many people don't understand repentance and they think because they sin and then they feel bad for it they think feeling bad for it is repentance that's not that's shame that's guilt that's godly grief That's feeling bad that's not repentance Okay? So I'm going I'm to give you three things that you can see in this text and three things that make up true repentance. Okay? And this is something that my mentors are speaking into my life. Okay? Instead of, when you're confronted with your sin, instead of saying, but what I meant to do was, well, I didn't mean to do that. Well, you know my heart. Well, I was trying harder and I didn't mean. And you're, instead of doing all those things, this is what Judah says. I'm that guy. You're an adulterer. Instead, I don't don't really, I mean, I commit adultery in my heart, but I don't really. Instead of making all the excuses, Judah says, I am that God. I am the sinner. I am that bad. It's the first part of repentance, owning it. Own your sin. Yes, I did it. Yes, I looked at it. Yes, I touched it. Yes, I stole it. Yes, I cheated. Yes, I'm chasing after other gods. Yes, that's me. I'm an idol worshiper. I'm that bad. I'm a sinner. I'm evil. Yes, agree with God in the situation. When Jesus says you're evil, we better agree with God. We're evil. First part of repentance. Own it. I am that guy. Second part. Confess it. Confess it, right? So I'm just gonna say let's, let's just add that part to own it. Own it and confess it is one. Own it and confess it, I am that guy. Number two, turn. Turn. That's what repentance is. There's a difference between confession and repentance. You can go to your fight club and you can confess your sins all day long, but you don't you don't get changed by confession. You get changed by repentance. Repentance is turning from what you're doing and turning towards Jesus Christ. So we own our sin, we confess our sin, we turn from our sin, and then we turn to Jesus in faith. See, this is the beauty. This is how your sin in the gospel, your sin can lead you into intimacy with Jesus. Whoa. Do you hear that? Your sin can actually lead you into intimacy with Jesus. Why? Because every time I sin, I'm reminded, okay, I am, I am that guy. I am that bad. I am that wicked father. I confess this to you. And now I turn away from whatever it is I'm chasing and I turn to Jesus and I'm reminded that Jesus knew I was this bad and Jesus came after me and Jesus saved me and Jesus loves me. And Jesus is standing at the right hand of the father right now, pleading my case for me right now. And he knew I was going to sin and he knew exactly how bad I was when he got me. So now my sin actually leads me into an intimacy with Jesus. You know you're battling legalism and moralism if your sin drives you away from Jesus. Did you hear that, church people? If when you sin, you feel less connected with God and you feel pushed away and you feel absent and you feel over here, more than likely, that's legalism and moralism. You failed your own standard. But in the gospel, our sin is meant to push us to Jesus. The only place where we can go and the blood of Jesus washes us from all sin. It's the only place that we can go. So we have this thing, these two aspects of the Christian life, repentance and faith. Repentance is owning it and confessing it and turning but what am I turning to? That's faith. I'm turning to the gospel. I'm turning to Jesus. Jesus is better than sex outside of marriage. Jesus is better than hun- trying to live off 100% of my income instead of 90%. Jesus is better than a life lived in a, you know, a little sectarian personal kingdom, without intimate friends. You know what? It's the God of the universe we're talking about. It's going to infect all of our life. It's going to affect everything about us. Our time, our money, our treasure, the way we live. It should be infecting everything about us. Your work, your your people at work should have noticed a difference. If you've embraced Jesus, they should have noticed a, a difference in you. Why? Because it's God. He's going to affect everything. So, Ultimately, Judah sees what we need to see. I am worse than I ever thought. I am that bad. She's more righteous than me. But what's so great? But now I am free to see that I'm also loved in a greater way than I've ever dreamed possible. See, that's what, when we're blind to our own blindness, we don't know that we're loved in spite of being wicked sinners. We think we're loved because we got our act together. But when somebody points out our sin and somebody reminds us that we are evil, it's a gift to us because now we can be reminded that we were loved as wicked people, as evil people. We were brought in as evil. But you've got to own it. You got to confess it. You got to turn from it and turn to Jesus. This This right here is where Judah becomes a Christian. This is where his life changes. Listen, I want you to know this. God could have killed him like he killed his two boys. God could have took him out. But God knew, apparently, God knew his heart and God knew that he would come to repentance. And so God patiently, graciously, mercifully hung in there despite all this man's evil. And see, when I look to Jesus, I am then free. When I'm looking to Jesus for my righteousness, I am then free to be honest with my own sins. I look to Jesus and I remember that the gospel says that Jesus' perfect righteousness is credited to me and that frees me to be honest and open about my struggles and my sins and not to be crushed by them. But unless I hold to this gospel by faith every day, moment by moment, honesty is just too hard and it's too frightening. Being real is just too much. And the next step for you is hypocrisy like Judah. The gospel frees us from being hypocrites. We can say, yeah, I'm that bad. I'm that bad. And in Christ, I'm that loved. And he's changing me. I am that guy. That's why I need Jesus. He's changing me to his his image. Now, what's really interesting, as I close again, If you go to Matthew chapter one and you read the genealogy of Jesus, you're gonna find four women in the genealogy of Jesus. Only four, okay? It was not common to include a woman in genealogies in those days, patriarchal in nature. But you're gonna find four women. And these women, first is Tamar, this, this woman who played the prostitute. Second is Rahab, A prostitute. Third is Ruth. Fourth is Bathsheba. Bathsheba, you know, adulterous affair with King David. Right? I want you to see this. All of these women had unconventional and really scandalous unions, scandalous marriages, questionable sexual histories. These ladies were all outsiders of God's covenant people. They they weren't raised in the church. But God chose to include them in Jesus' family tree. And then he chose to let the world know about it by immortalizing them in the genealogy in Matthew. What does that tell us? Listen, God loves sinners. Sinners. But God resists the proud. He, the scripture says he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He literally fights against and destroys those who stay blind to their own sin and who refuse to confess and repent. That's what it means to be proud. What does it mean to be proud? To not want to see your sin, to to not want to repent, to not want to own it. That's what it means to be proud. I don't need the righteousness of Jesus. I've got my own. I'm hoping that one day when I stand before God, I'm going to be good enough. That's pride. You're not going to be good enough. There's only one who's been good enough and that's Jesus Christ. God loves sinners. God is building out the family line that's going to lead up to the king of all kings and he throws four... Sexually immoral women in the in the lineup. And he lets everybody know about it. It's been said that the prostitute is closer to the kingdom of God than the religious person. Why? Because the prostitute knows they're a sinner. The religious person thinks that God accepts them because they're good. Where are you at this morning? Where are you at right now? Are you self-righteous? Can you see everybody else's sin, but you have a hard time seeing your own? Are you actively fighting your sin? Do you have people in your life who have the freedom to show you your sin and to remind you of the gospel? Do you have a gospel-centered missional community? Do you have that? Or are you living this religious fantasy where you're trying to make God happy by being a good person? Or are you trying just to be a little bit better than those other friends that you have on Facebook that you know they're way worse than you. That's not the way of the gospel. That's exhausting. God's way is light. His burden is easy. Jesus says, "Come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest." Come to Jesus this morning and accept the free gift of righteousness that he gives you. All you do is place your faith in him. All you do is say, Christ, I want you to cover me with your blood and forgive all of my sins and give me your righteousness by faith. I want that. And God will change you just like he changed Judah. We're going to go on and see that Judah becomes an awesome dude, an awesome man of God. But he was not. Everybody starts somewhere and it starts with repentance and faith. And that day could be today for you. Today could be the day that you start with repentance and faith. And you never know what's going to happen in your future, what God can do with it. Turn from your sin. Confess it. Own it. And turn to Jesus. Embrace the gospel, man. Embrace the gospel. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It is a gift to us. So resonate with this story, Father. And I thank you for your spirit. I thank you that this is thousands of years old, but it still rings true today. And I pray that you would help us because we can't see our sin without your spirit. I ask that you would enable us to see see our sin, that we wouldn't justify, we wouldn't make excuses, but we would own it. We would confess it. We would turn from it. We would turn to you. You are our savior. We are great sinners, but you are an even greater savior. Let us embrace the freedom that comes with finding our righteousness in Christ. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to perform. We don't have to wear masks. We can admit how we really are and how we really feel. Thank you for that. Let the love of God melt our hearts of stone. As we come to the table this morning, remind us of your sacrifice. Remind us of this gift. Remind us of who you are and who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen.